Hi, and welcome back to the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. This is episode 115. And today I have as my guest, Dr. Jill Leckie. Hey, Jill, how are you doing? Hi, Lauren. How are you doing? Now, like most of my guests, the accent is going to be confusing as to where you're based and where you're, you're at. Just help us understand uh, the confusion that we're dealing with. Because you're, you're in Australia, right? And that's where you're currently based. Uh, yes, so I am. Um, I'm based in Adelaide at the moment in Australia, um, but as you can tell, the accent is certainly not from here. So yeah, I'm from Belfast originally. <laughs> yeah, we've we've had a few of your uh, your your kinfolk, uh, James Morton being um, the, uh, the the prince of Belfast. Possibly, I think will allow him that that uh, that honour. So um, there's all sorts of reasons that I wanted to have you on as a guest today. Um, before I um, explain, you know, what we're going to be talking about and why I want us to get into that particular topic. If you could just help the listeners um, uh, with some some background as to who you are and what you've done and what you're currently doing. Yeah, um, so I am currently working for the Australian cycling team um, in the performance nutrition role, and that's um, predominantly with the track track cycling team and. Prior to that, I completed my PhD in Melbourne with uh, Professor John Holly, Louise Burke, and James Morton. So the dream team of supervisors, really. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I, I spent four years in Melbourne, pretty much, and moved over to Adelaide about 18 months ago to, to work for the cycling team. Brilliant. And... Um... Uh, so what we know is that you're, you're not just a practitioner, you've also been a researcher, obviously. And, you know, as I'm preparing for, as I was preparing for today's podcast, which in many ways has been four years of preparation, because as, as everyone will know, I've, I've discussed lots of interesting topics with lots of interesting experts, um, professors and practitioners with national teams and, and, and so on. But there has been a theme throughout my podcast, I guess, if I had to think of a theme beyond, you know, the purpose of my podcast, which is to unwrap the evidence into an applied context. And as always, I'm trying to question what actually evidence is, you know, what constitutes as evidence that's relevant to podcast, my, my obsession that ultimately got me to do a doctorate in that, in that topic. But it's such an interesting topic because, you know, we constantly need to question um, this idea of, of evidence that we're using to inform practice because you only have to spend five minutes on social media. There's obviously lots of experts, um, quotes, unquote, experts. Um, but there are a number of topics that there are huge levels of fascination in, which is very much um, currently still um, this idea of, you know, uh, is carbohydrate king for performance? Uh, what about low carb? What about uh, the, you know, the, the, the keto uh, diets, adaptations? Um, and, and latterly, a little bit more recently, I guess, the, the, the idea of ketone diester supplementation. Um, it, it's pretty big. And, and I have gotten into this over the years with a number of people, including your own supervisors of your PhD, <laughs> so no pressure, um, uh, John uh, Hawley and Louise Burke, but also people like um, um, James Morton and Trent Stanningworth and so on. But the focus has always been on carbohydrate, 
carbohydrate periodization. Uh, we've gone into all sorts of things, train low, com, you know, compete, you know, high and, and all that. But, but, um, and we have discussed the whole low fat and keto thing. I've done a bit of that with, uh, Louise, of course, but the one topic that I wanted to focus on today, which is something that you've done a lot of work on is, is dietary fat particularly, or also sort of fatty acid availability, um, and how that fits into this conversation, whether it's high fat, um, diets, whether it's the use of, uh, fat through, uh, supplementation, um, uh, beyond a regular diet, you know, do we go high carb, uh, low fat or, you know, high fat, high protein, low carb. There's a, there's a lot of angles there that I think is a question of looking at this from the other side of the mirror. Um, so you, you did your PhD in this realm, didn't you? Maybe you could just quickly explain, you know, what, what that was about briefly, because we're going to expand upon that. And why, why did you even go down that, that path? Yeah, so I guess firstly, thanks for um, getting me on the podcast after interviewing the four big hitters. So that was really <laughs> timely. Uh, I could have went first. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so my PhD, I guess it initially stemmed from the real interest at the time, which was, you know, a, a few years ago in, in high fat diets. And that was really, you know, that was a big interest of, of John's and Louise's and James's at the time. And um, it was a real topic of conversation. And it was something they were, they were extremely passionate about. And that was, was pretty infectious through our lab at the time, to be honest. Um, and it wasn't, wasn't because high fat diets were a new thing. Um, high fat diets were first looked at back in the 1920s and again you know there was a massive point of research around the 2000s but you know I guess it came back to life again and um, started entering the, the elite sporting world um, and with with John and Louise and James having that passion between you know the research and as you say research-based practice but also winning gold medals and the link between the two and trying to really delve a bit deeper into the impact of high fat, um, high fat dietary interventions, but also just really exploring the importance of all fat and the relevance of it when it comes to that high intensity exercise. And that was really um, where my PhD initiated, looking at, you know, what if we remove fat? What if we, you know, take a different form of fat, what if we add, have a high fat diet? And it was looking at the, the various components, both from a practical performance perspective and also from a more um, molecular perspective as well. Yeah. You know, so I used a term earlier, which is becoming my new favorite word. For people that listen to my podcast, I'll know I got a bit obsessed with context for a while. But, um, and I said this in the last couple of podcasts, but my, my new word, the new t-shirt, the new mug's going to be is it relevant? Um, and I think that's an important statement when you're looking at this from the perspective of, of using information to inform decision-making, either as a practitioner or, or as a researcher. And I think there's a propensity to get stuck in, you know, in, in information that we've gained from, from studies, from, you know, from the literature um, that may well be published it may well be the result of a well-controlled study but is it actually relevant to practice and um 
lately my focus is on talking to people such as yourself, people who've been on both sides of the science to practice uh, continuum, if you like, because I think that there is a there is a disconnect between the two. Um, you know, and we all understand that. You know, every lab out there, they need to produce research, um, and that's a continuing process. And in one way or the other, it contributes to the body of knowledge, some of which is very experimental, some of which is very mechanistic, um, but not necessarily a lot of it is directly relevant. And by that, I mean, as a practitioner, you're wading through the unbelievable quantities of information now and you're trying to determine you know what's going on here like what do we use it's even worse for the less informed for those that haven't conducted research those that aren't necessarily as familiar with the ability to differentiate quality from flawed science or or quality but irrelevant science from quality and relevant science um, so even on this very topic you know, you, 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 when you explore PubMed or, you know, you, you look at, at the information that's out there, there's certainly a lot of people that are looking at this, but there's also a great deal of variety in the quality of that research. And by that, I mean, some people are doing biopsies, some people are, you know, heavily into looking at the, you know, the, the sort of the bio, biochemistry side of things. Uh, using laboratory techniques to open up that window, open up, you know, get a lens into what's actually happening. Whereas a lot of other people are, uh, uh, you know, are very much cause and effect without looking at what's in the middle and a lot of assumptions are being made. Maybe perhaps you could just comment on that because, you, you know, you've, you've definitely done research where you guys have got not just high quality science but you have actually done those extra steps i think to minimize the lack of uh confusion or tr the, you know we talk about translational issues when we talk about this stuff and a lot of information does get lost in translation and i think it's not just about reducing bias or reducing error or you know, this is, I think a lot of research also needs to reduce the likelihood of having translational issues as well in, in, in when it comes to practitioner or consumer interpretation. I mean, how do you feel about that? And as a practitioner, given you do work at the elite end of the spectrum, how does that influence the way you look at this information? Yeah, look, absolutely. I think it's, um, it's critical to, to take into consideration all of these factors when we look at the research and certainly working in elite sport now, I look at research very differently than when I was doing my PhD even. And I think, you know, what won the population that you're working with, and we know that elite, elite athletes are, they are not the 70% VO2 max that we work with in the lab. They're completely different, different people and have different physiology and, and, you know, we, we've done some testing in the lab here and every day I'm surprised by what we, what we get still. And I think you really have to, you, know, you have to assess carefully the research and take into consideration what population they are working with. Um, and also when we're actually applying that information, who we're applying it to, because, you know, we know that information's often misinterpreted where, for example, oh, because, because elite athletes are on high carbohydrate diet at times, then everybody should, you know, everybody should be eating high carbohydrate diets. When of course there's a time and a place, and 
there's a lot of specific information that actually comes with that, but it's very easy to misinterpret the information. And, you know, a lot of that comes with social media or news headlines that people only see part of the story. Um, and also, you know, then when we, when we think about the more molecular studies and the muscle biopsy studies, again, you know, they certainly don't come from elite athletes because it would be very difficult to extract muscle samples from elite athletes as much as we would all love to do. So again, it's, you know, it's trying to interpret that with caution, knowing that it is, it's simply not the population that we may be working with. And, um, you know, part of, part of my research was, was trying to look at the whole spectrum. So we did, we did work with elite professional cyclists. Um, so the road cyclists that we had in the lab for the ketone study, and that was, really great to get a true practical outcome from the study um, and then we went into the more you know muscle biopsy study as well so I think we well and truly tried to cover the full spectrum but absolutely interpreting information with caution is something I do every day at the Australian cycling team for sure. Yeah and that's like you know look most of our listeners are beyond the basic level of education you know um um, most of most of those of you that are listening, you know, we know that you're going to be sports scientists or researchers or have PhDs or a lot of you are practitioners at the cold face of elite sport, you know, so it's not a, you know, we don't want to, there's no question of underestimating that level of knowledge, but it is always worth reminding that even at the most, most advanced end of, of this sort of, you know, the, the, the research, the contemporary understanding of where we're at is, is we still don't know very much. Um, and I think that's something that, that I keep trying to remind people. This, this is something I certainly wasn't aware of when I started my own journey, but I'm very aware of it now because I talk to so many people like yourself, even where there's differences of opinion. I mean, that's the interesting thing is, is, is we've got different views and ideas about what's going on, which, is, which, which are both correct. Um, it's just perhaps, dare I mention context obviously influences, you know, whether, you know, whether one angle is right or wrong. So it, it always depends. Um, but look, let's roll back so that we can focus, um, on, on what I want to, to get into. So as performance nutritionists, which is the primary focus of, of where we're going with this, um, you know, we get a bit obsessed with, the nutrition side of things and the power of food, or as Kevin Carroll says, you know, we, we, we get excited about unleashing the power of food, but we, we do need to remember, you know, that it, it's just one part of a bigger picture. And, and there is so much that's in that bigger picture. And in particular, if we have to choose a chicken or the egg sort of side to this, you know, um, the training stimulus is going to be the bigger part of the picture when we're talking about training adaptations and and performance and so on you know that the, the, the sort of the physical side of it is is a profound aspect but nutrition does play an important role and it has that power to support and influence what's going on but when we're talking about winning medals i guess what we're really looking at is is the sort of the effectiveness of the engine so to speak particularly from a fueling perspective which is what we're interested in and I guess the terminology that we're going to start to look at when, when we do that is more about substrate utilization, for example, um, and how that engine manages that fuel use 
um, and its ability to switch between different types of fuel because we have very cool engines that can use different types of fuel that can be used for different purposes. And, and, and I guess we're now calling that metabolic flexibility, which is starting to come um, out more in, in the literature. So as we understand that that metabolic machinery is complex but adaptable, there's a sort of a flexibility stroke plasticity to all of that through our training and, and so on. Um, I think we also need to understand that that the, those adaptations and the way in which we use that engine will also vary depending on the types of exercise, the types of, of training, which is, again, something that I think we tend to not do so much when we have these conversations is define what we're even talking about. Endurance sport, endurance training isn't just endurance. There are many kinds of endurance. Um, so just so we can contextualize our conversation a bit here, Jill, um, what we're going to do is talk about endurance, but perhaps you could just give us an idea about, about what that means in terms of substrate utilization and maybe some of the different angles there, there might be with that. Yeah. So look, <laughs> I guess when we, you know, when we think, we think about endurance athletes and it's funny cause I, I work with endurance athletes and they complete, you know, they do, polar opposite sides of training that you might expect. But um, I guess typically when we think about endurance athletes, we often think about that. Um, it's often thought of as a submaximal workload. And when you look at research papers, it's a lot of the time it's talked about as, you know, they're completing long submaximal bouts of work, which absolutely they are at times. Um, but certainly in the majority of programs would be, um, the high intensity work and when I and I guess what I mean by that is you know the prolongs of maximal maybe 70 75 percent VO2 max or below um, and then when we think about the high intensity we think you know plus 75 into 80 90 and when we think about whether it's elite cyclists or elite marathon runners they might hold closer to 90 percent of VO2 max for quite a long period of time um, and we know that you know, from, from the research that's that's been done, the changes in substrate utilization that do take place, you know, being adaptations from, from the training. So we talk about the increased utilization of fat at a specific workload and the, you know, as a consequence of that, the reduction in the carbohydrate utilization when working um, at an absolute workload. So, and, you know, reduce lactate production as well. So that's, that some of the adaptations that take place um, and changes that occur in substrate utilization following a period of training. But what we need to think about is um, what athletes are actually trying to achieve as well. So they want to maintain the highest power output, the highest um, speed for a prolonged period of time. And you know they actually want to work at as high relative intensity as they possibly can um, to, to produce ATP during, during an exercise bout or and especially a race so yeah there's adaptations that take place and absolutely looking at whether it's that submaximal or the high intensity really um, makes a big difference when talking about substrate utilization so what, what i always find interesting is when you when you start reading basic um textbooks on you know exercise physiology or or you know uh, strength conditioning and that sort of thing the, the usual scenario is to 
what we now know is to radically oversimplify the you know what's going on um and it you know terminology will be you know aerobic or anaerobic sort of metabolism and this many atp are used and then there's this whole brooks and mercier thing you know where we go from one end of the spectrum of it's all carbohydrate and at the end of that it's all it's all fat um with basically no mentioning of signaling and fiber types although there is a little bit you know they might talk about slow twitch and fast twitch maybe a little bit um certainly nothing to do with all the enzymatic stuff that's going on um you know maybe let's just quickly explore and there's a reason why i'm doing this so maybe we could just quickly explore in that metabolic machinery just how complex it is and i'm not asking you here to describe a really scary diagram for us um but just to just to help us understand the degree of complexity here and 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 in that metabolic machinery, you know, we have to understand that a lot of that stuff is stuff that will adapt one way or the other uh, to training and, and to diet, um, which obviously has, has consequences, which is largely what I want to get into. So, um, yeah, if you could just quickly give us an idea of what we're talking about. Yeah, look, absolutely. I guess, um, you know, there's, there's the dietary component and there's the training component. And, you know, we know that the variation in nutritional recommendations pre-exercise during exercise will impact the adaptations of that specific workload or specific session. So whether it's a high carbohydrate session and, you know, high carbohydrate consumed the day before and the morning of and potentially during as well. And, um, you know, that's the increase the ability to sustain that high intensity exercise. And then, you know, so increase muscle glycogen beforehand, but then also there's the, there's the tree and low strategy um, as well, which again results in shifts in you know mitochondria and mitochondrial density, which can therefore have a different training adaptation. And then also when we think about high fat diets and you know the consequence of that and the one the ability to sustain the high intensity exercise while actually having a high fat diet, um, and and what the consequences of that are. And you know as yeah we've talked about the research, you know the research shows that. With, with the high fat diet, some of those adaptations are certainly suppressed. And as you talked about the metabolic flexibility and the ability to use carbohydrate, if you've been on a high fat diet is reduced. So yes, yeah, it's definitely a complex system. And when you, when you read textbooks, it's often quite difficult to <laughs> interpret the full story, but you know, we've got to yeah, put something down. Absolutely. And what's frequently not discussed is the, is the human side of it, you know, the, the, the experience of the actual person, um, their likes, dislikes, pre preferences, uh, even, you know, religious constraints, you know, all sorts of things that are really interesting that you weren't necessarily thinking about in, in um, you know, when we look at the, the sort of the theory and the mechanisms, but when it comes to applying it, these things definitely all matter, you know, is, is it going to make you feel sick or ill or, you know, if impact perception of effort. I mean, there's a lot here and we'll get into some of these, these topics, but, um, when it comes to substrate utilization, then, um, we've mentioned a lot of things here, um, you know, train low and, you know, uh, uh, periodization. Um, but scientists do have this nasty habit of using words like significant 
statistically significant. Uh, there's a reduced this, that, and the other. But if we change the phraseology to meaningful in the real world, you know, if, if we were to have a sort of a hierarchy of, of these things, you know, what are the more meaningful um, aspects to this as opposed to the more marginal aspects? Just so we can now start to have a, uh, a, a lens on what's more relevant and what's less relevant when it comes to overall performance, particularly in the context of, of what you're currently working in, for example. Yeah, look, I guess, you know, thinking about the field that I'm working in at the moment, so the elite cycling industry, um, I certainly do not underestimate the power of carbohydrate still and mm. the impact of that on performance. And, you know, we've there's been plenty of research on high-fat diets and they've certainly been explored and um and it's you know it's really separating it into the, the different populations that you're working with and um when thinking about the um yeah the different the different fuel option the different fueling options you, it's really thinking about what the goal the goal that you're really trying to achieve so i think well that's a good point you just made and that is something you when we're looking at this is what actually are we trying to do here? And that, if that brings us back obviously to the periodization conversation, and I've, I've spoken to James Morton about this a lot um, and, and Trent Stanningworth. And I think we forget sometimes that it does depend on what we're doing and what we're trying to do. Um, and, and it, we need to be mindful that it isn't necessarily, I mean, there's always an immediate effect, but when we're talking about, the intended adaptation, the intended result, that is not so immediate. It takes a bit of time. We have to chip away at, at, at these things. Um, so, right, let's do, let, okay. So let, let's just bring this back to something I think that's important is when we talk about, I referred to the training stimulus as particularly impactful. Um, as it relates to substrate utilization, what, what actually, I mean, we're talking about endurance athletes. So they're doing a lot of endurance training, okay? What actually is the main um, consequence in terms of, of the adaptation of skeletal muscle to endurance training as it relates to substrate utilization? Because that's worth thinking about. Yeah, well, I mean, when we know that when athletes complete, uh, you know, periods or prolonged periods of, um, of endurance training, then they get that adaptation where there is a reduction in the utilization of carbohydrate as a fuel source when working at a specific workload, and they get that increase in the utilization of um, of fat as a fuel source. And as a consequence of that, there's reduced lactate production as well, and an increase in you know the release of free fatty acids from the adipose tissue. And but but again, it's thinking about you know what way that work is being completed, whether it's whether it's a train low session or whether it's a train high session, to what the adaptation will be, and certainly. Um, we know that a lot of athletes will will train low at certain stages, and there are you know increased mitochondrial density adaptations from that. But the translation into performance, I would say, has yet to be fully established. But we know that there's certainly molecular adaptations that take place. And so, one thing that jumps out to me when we talk about that is there's clearly a difference then in how we should be interpreting what the science is telling us as it relates to an average athlete, if there is one, and an elite 
athlete. And of course, the, when, we, when we think about the noise that exists as the overriding messages about how we should be looking at carbohydrates and fats, you know, clearly the bulk of, of this noise is aimed at, at just people out there um, you know, training for whatever purpose, whether it's, um, you know, uh, recreational cycling, recreational marathon training. I realize, you know, that there's nothing, there's nothing minor about training for a marathon, but there is a big difference between completing a marathon in, in four or five hours than there is in under three hours. Um, and this, and this conversation is very relevant to that because th there are plenty of people that can do these things, but actually they, they shouldn't worry about it because chances of them actually truly periodizing their training or periodizing their nutrition and so on to get what ultimately is quite marginal adaptations is really not that relevant to, to these people. Um, that's why I was saying earlier, you know, like in the spectrum of importance and relevance, just how impactful is this stuff so maybe before we get back into where I was going with substrate utilization and, and um, fat in particular is maybe in terms of the physiology of of say an elite athlete like a cyclist or someone who is trained but not elite level trained I mean how much of a difference is there as it relates to you know our ability to impact upon them with things like nutrition you think um and by that i mean maybe it's yes marginal with an elite athlete and maybe there's actually huge amount of things we can do with a recreational athlete i don't know but but i mean is there much of a difference between these people <laughs> i mean like i think when we think about elite athletes they uh, and the, the training program that they follow they're absolutely trying to maximize adaptation to every single session and trying to get the most out of every single session um, and, you know, when it comes to some of those adaptations, they're certainly going to be close to the peak of, um, of what they're going to get out of, you know, out of that. And that's why when it comes to nutrition, really modifying nutrition around the session so that we can, you know, we're working on the one percenters now yeah. um, to, to really try and get the most out of that. Whereas, yeah. and, you know, it, I would say, when we think about endurance exercise, it certainly can be the difference in a race between first place and third place, first place and second place. When you yeah. see a road race and crossing the finish line and, you know, the person that's the, the sprint finish at the end. Um, and, you know, when it comes to, um, when it comes to, I guess, less trained or someone that's simply training to complete an event, I would say the end goal is very different. They're not, they're potentially not looking for the sprint finish at the end. They're looking to just get through it and sustain a, a comfortable intensity. And um, they're not looking to push that boundary. And um, when we think about the intent, the relative intensity that elites will be aiming to hold for the whole duration of a race, then it's pretty substantial in comparison. Yeah. And so I'm pleased you mentioned that because, you know, there's going to be one population of people where the training adaptations to um, what they're doing isn't just about substrate utilization. Obviously, that might be a rather minor angle. It might be they just need to lose enough weight uh, to compete, you know, complete that that sprint triathlon or that, you know, that um, even an Olympic triathlon, but at the you know at the recreational level, um, is very different 
you know, than the super duper elites. Um, and obviously we haven't even talked about ultra endurance, which if we have a minute, we might, might be interesting to see what you think about that. I have a lot of interest in that. Um, um, and obviously the, uh, the amount of time and effort people put into how expensive their bicycles are and all the gadgetry <laughs> goes with it and all the craziness that revolves around sports like cycling, for example, particularly in the recreational arena is, um, you know, it, it is crazy at best um, and crazy at worst, really. <laughs> um, Right. So look, we, we, as we start to do training, we've got adaptations that you've described. Um, and in particular, you know, a major goal of training for performance enhancement is we're aiming to get adaptations to skeletal muscle to get increased levels of, of performance to win those medals that you've discussed. So if we, if we just stick in that area there, where really what we're talking about now is not not surviving the event, but winning the event. That's really what we're interested in, is what differentiates the, yes, you can do something um, and you'll get around the course. And for recreational athletes, that might be more important, i.e. the intervention that enables you to lose weight, um, you know, not eat as much food, blah, 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 um, as differentiated to what's necessary to get the fastest possible time and get around, get around that 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 course so that's that's when obviously carbohydrate becomes particularly important and we talked about that and i've had that discussion with lots of people so we don't need to specifically focus on that but we don't just eat carbohydrate we eat food um and there are other components within food and 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 we still oversimplify that to say well it's either carbohydrate fats and protein and we can vary those in different amounts but there's obviously a lot of other stuff that's in food but if I become guilty of my own criticisms and just focus on those for a minute, um, and you've looked at this a lot as it relates to the manipulation of those macronutrients as it relates to performance, what, what are we now seeing when it comes to that manipulation of, of, um, of carbohydrate and fat and carbohydrate, um, or sorry, fat and, and protein? What, what, what have you seen emerging from the quality science um that maybe differentiates from all that noise that that we're hearing yeah look we um we completed a research study and what we decided to look so what we wanted to establish was is it the is it the high fat or is it actually the low carbohydrate availability that's um you know, inducing some of these adaptations that we're seeing from from a high fat diet. So obviously, a lot of the a lot of the hype was around we we should potentially increase fat or we should potentially decrease fat. But what we wanted to say was was it, was it the high fat or was it the low carbohydrate, so that we could differentiate a little bit more and to enable us to ask that question, we had to clamp carbohydrate low. Um, um it certainly wasn't a ketogenic diet, that's for sure. And um, so it wasn't you know. I guess less than 20 or less than 50 grams a day. I think recalling back, it was around two, two and a half grams per kilo. So it was still a reasonable amount of carbohydrates that, they, that the guys were having. Um, but to enable us to do that, we clamped carbohydrate low and we provided either a high fat or a high protein diet. So it was a pretty large intake from protein, which we you know, it was certainly a laboratory-based study. It's not something that you would provide specifically to an athlete and the purpose of that was we actually wanted to delve a little deeper into 
some of the molecular adaptations that took place. And as I said, mitochondria being the, the powerhouse of the cell, we really wanted to explore that a little bit more and see the one of the areas that we assessed was the impact on mitochondrial respiration. Um, so when we, and that was an area that had really at the time only been explored in animals. Um, it hadn't really been looked at in humans in relation to a high fat diet. So what we found was because because we already know from the research that you know there's a down regulation of PDH. So potentially rather than the sparing of carbohydrate that's often talked about, actually compromising your ability to use carbohydrate as a fuel source. So it was a market we, we didn't measure, but you know, one of the endpoints of that was looking at the change in respiration. And we saw that the five days of the and the high fat diet actually resulted in um, a negative effect to the, um, a reduction in mitochondrial respiration. So effectively the production of energy. Um, so, so yeah, that was, that was seen in the high fat diet, but it wasn't seen in the high protein diet. And so for us, that was, you know, a potent marker from high fat rather than the low carbohydrate availability, which was in both trials. So that was something I would say that hasn't, that hadn't really been explored before that and give a bit of a different context to looking at high fat diets. Yeah, and this is where I think this gets really interesting um, is on a basic level, firstly, is um, the consequence of, of altering these substrates. Um, and the reason why I was mentioning the difference between sort of average athletes and elite athletes is those consequences may not be relevant to average athletes. And in fact, the bigger picture is the overall impact of that intervention will have impact on, for example, body composition and, you know, getting rid of dead weight and all that stuff, which might be a greater limiting factor to their performance. Uh, but in the more elite athletes where, for example, body composition is possibly less of an issue, um, but the the impact that that has on substrate utilization um, and metabolic flexibility probably is more relevant. And certainly, you know, what I've seen from the work that you've been involved with, that's, that's a pretty clear outcome. But that is not a message that everyone talks about. And one reason why not everyone's talking about that is because they're not doing studies that are looking at what's happening this deep into the machinery. Um, if you could just remind us of, of, of why, well, of, of, of what you've been looking at in that regard as, as, as it differentiates, for example, where people are doing, yes, um, they're doing metabolic testing where they're you know, using a metabolic cart to look at things like respiratory quotient, um, you know, uh, expired gas analysis. It all looks like high tech super science this is what I do in my, in my practice, but <laughs> we don't that doesn't necessarily accurately reflect what's going on inside of that metabolic machinery where we get to understand this in a bit more detail maybe you could just help us understand a bit more about what i've just said yeah look absolutely i guess when we when we look at indirect calorimetry it's it's a really effective way to look at substrate utilization and it, it looks at whole body substrate utilization and um, and we know that of course there's limitations to using that when it comes to intensity. And um, so it's great when we're looking at those submaximal workloads, but of course, when it comes to the high intensity work, it um, <laughs> presents a few questions. Um, 
with the validity of the work. So we really, you know, in addition to measuring the indirect uh, or in addition to using the indirect colorimetry measures, we really, you know, we wanted to delve a little bit deeper and actually look at the changes in the scoliosis muscle um, and actually look at, you know, whether it's a change in, um, you know, we, we weren't able to measure some of the storage components. So we didn't, we did measure muscle glycogen, but we weren't able to measure triglycerides. But certainly even looking at, um, even looking at muscle glycogen, you know, we see a clear difference between the high protein trial and the high fat trial. And again, that was, um, it's something I guess that you, you know, might happen um, based on the biochemistry, but then when you actually measure it, it's, yeah, it's great to really see that, you know, some of the um, protein ingestion was potentially converted and actually stored as muscle glycogen because of, because of the volume of protein. So, yeah, I think, um, I, I guess I would say it's really important to delve deeper. And I know, you know, there's other labs around the world exploring that area. Um, but, you know, some, also, some of the concentrations used, for example, are, yeah. are not necessarily um, representative of, of reality. So, you know, when, when looking at mitochondrial respiration, some, some of the, um, it, it has to be put in context, I guess, of, of, of real life as well. Yeah, and so the reason why I'm delving into that is because when I read some of your papers with you and your colleagues, you know, it's rather interesting to see the changes that occur in that regard as it relates to strategies that have been looked at, such as, um, you know, nutritional priming strategies, um, as in pre, pre-training, pre-event, um, but also the influences of those nutritional sort of manipulations that we've already talked about, whether it's train low, train high, and so on, but how that directly translates to not just substrate utilization, but ultimately to the actual performance um, effect itself. And there is definitely some confusion there between what we've assumed in the past from that whole body analysis, but without looking at what's going on in the middle. But also, of course, it's also further complicated by the fact that an awful lot of these studies are done on recreational athletes or students. Um, now obviously, there's definitely the odd uber elite athlete student, but on the whole, they tend not to be. Um, perhaps you could explain why that's important, that we do need to differentiate between those two types of test subjects and how that influences how we should interpret this information in this context yeah look um absolutely it's always it's always key to look at the the um participant that's involved in the study and yes we we did use you know i guess defined as well trained but certainly um in comparison to the the elite athlete it's it's very different and we are unable obviously unable to take muscle biopsies from the elite athlete but even thinking about when it comes to whole body substrate utilization and you know some of the when we look at absolute vo2 max and um the, the substrate utilization that you whole body you actually see when you do measure elite athletes it's considerably higher at, you know they're working at considerably higher power outputs or running at significantly higher speeds and so as a consequence of that of course the substrate utilization is significantly higher. So, you know, that's not something that we often get the luxury of testing in the lab. And I, you know, I guess the, there's, there's not really many studies out there looking at, Actually, or any studies looking at elite athletes and muscle biopsies. So it's really difficult to, you know, determine how, how different that would be with, with the muscle biopsy findings. 
Sure. And uh, see, another thing that's relevant to this, which, um, you, you know, you, you hear people talking about things like fat burning, right? Which is a whole can of worms um, when it comes to, you know, in a gym, you see a piece of gym equipment and it says you're in the fat burning zone. Like, you know, that's that we all know is a bit of a bit of a bit of a nightmare, that one. But when we are talking about whole body, um, you know, uh, tests using whole body testing methodologies and we're looking at fat oxidation. So your, you know, your, your respiratory quotient is suggesting that you're using predominantly uh, fat based on that breath to breath analysis. Is that actually what's happening within the muscle um, that's relevant to endurance performance or is there a bit of confusion there? Uh, You know, what's going on there? Like how directly does one influence the other? Yeah, well, look, we know that, um, especially when you're when you're working at those higher workloads, for example, changing bicarbonate kinetics can impact the substrate utilization. But also, when thinking about from a fuel source perspective, you know, measuring the muscle glycogen really adds significant value to the story. And looking at intramuscular triglycerides as well, which you know often aren't, it's almost not really talked about that much that they even exist and it's almost considered just the breakdown of um you know the adipose tissue and free fatty acids available in the bloodstream so yeah it's definitely important to add in that extra component of looking at the skeletal muscle to see the change so you know now that we're getting more into fat specifically the you know we all eat food i've already said that and within a typical diet, there will be the presence of fat in varying quantities. Fat has obviously been labeled over the last number of decades as the most evil thing on the planet, which has led to initially why so many people eating high carbohydrate diets, but also within a sort of a more athlete, you know, context, we're also talking about carbohydrate as king and athletes are concerned with their, their body composition one way or the other, or their metabolic health. Um, to a certain extent, you know, they're still human beings. They still are influenced by perceptions of what is or is not healthy. The, you know, the way in which we consume fat in our day-to-day diet, what impact does that, that have on the way we use fat for exercise? And the second part of that is what about the different types of fat? Because obviously it's not just fat. There are different kinds of fat primarily say saturated and unsaturated fats what what you know what what's the impact of that a two-parter for you there <laughs> yeah i was gonna say i might have to go back to the first one yeah um so so firstly looking at the difference in or i guess consuming fat and the impact on yeah yeah just just you know we we, we consume like we know what happens when we consume carbohydrates and there are different you know different kinds of carbohydrates and the impact that that will have directly on performance within the hours so to speak and yes i know there's an impact of training and adaptation and so on but just generally speaking um we have an idea about carbohydrates we don't have an idea that's well discussed at least about how how that would go for fat uh within the diet yeah so like when we i guess when we think about fat storage um within you know adipose tissue free fatty acids in the blood and intramuscular triglycerides so there's there's plenty of storage of fat. And I guess one thing that I often find interesting is 
um, the conversation of how much fat do you have and, you know, mm. can you run out like you run out of, you know, the, there's potential to be low in carbohydrate. And I guess we know that even the leanest of athletes could run for a very long period of time when you think fat as a fuel source. Um, so, yeah, that's certainly that's certainly a big variation when it comes to the, the limited supply of carbohydrate we have, whereas the absolutely abundant fat stores, even in even in very lean populations. You know, and that, okay, you, you, that was perfect because that's exactly where I wanted to segue um, with this was an argument then that is presented for improving our efficiency, if you like, at utilizing fat is on the basis that we have limited amounts of carbohydrate. Um, and we have, you know, people say, oh, you've got enough fat, you know, that you could run for five marathons back to back sort of conversation. You hear this all the time. Um, <laughs> is that an oversimplification? And again, how relevant is that though to performance as it pertains to winning medals? Um, because we don't just use fat or carbohydrate, do we? Metabolic flexibility conversation coming up, of course. <laughs> Yeah, look, absolutely. It's certainly not, you know, switch one off and switch the other on. We know that it's it's a moving scale. And um, that's definitely a conversation that comes up, you know, oh, well, I've got abundant fat stores. So absolutely, I can just use fat as a fuel source. And, you know, I can save my carbohydrates for later and save them for when I really need them. But, you know, what we do know, and I guess this is absolutely key for elite athletes is that, you know, the energy yield for given volume of oxygen is about 5% higher from carbohydrate than it is for fat. So really, um, you know, it's much more efficient to actually use carbohydrate as a fuel source. And when we think about the limiting factors of the high intensity work that elite athletes would be completing, the last thing they would, what we would want them to use as a fuel source is, is therefore fat. Yeah. Um, so we often think about the, you know, I guess the, People talk about the adaptation of all. Oh, if we can just increase our ability to use fat, then you know that that'll be great. But actually, it can be detrimental because we really want to be focusing on that. Well, yeah, and if you look at what researchers such as yourself have found over, you know, over the particularly in recent times, using those more advanced um, molecular techniques, where we're actually starting to understand well just how much carbohydrate for example or glycogen etc is actually being used in these events and what is the predominant fuel source used by elite athletes in in endurance events which the assumption has always been again brooks and mercy you know the more you know the 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 the, the, the more endurance based the exercise you know the more aerobic it is which is not necessarily true at all for elite athletes you know you look at people who can run for two to three hours aren't necessarily just using fat as a fuel um it's quite the opposite actually isn't it yeah look <laughs> yeah absolutely and when we actually break down and look at the the amount of carbohydrate we use or you know during that high intensity prolonged exercise it it, it can be pretty scary to look at um and yes, so we, you know, we did explore the half, the half marathon study that we completed. We wanted to really look at what, what is the value of fat in an event like this. And I guess we took a bit of a different perspective to do that. And so rather than feeding fat, we actually blocked the use of fat as a fuel source. So we used a substance to block the release of free fatty acids from the adipose tissue. And that was really to 
I guess, help determine what is the importance of fat in an event like a half marathon. Yeah. And I guess it, you know, it came out confirming that um, the idea that athletes are absolutely carbohydrate dependent and I, you know, 83 to 91%, I think, were the, the values. And that was, that was even when someone was going out in a fasted state. So although they had muscle glycogen available based on the day before energy intake, um, you know, they were, they were still coming out carbohydrate dependent. And it's funny because I know if you had the conversation, you know, sometimes it comes out, oh, but if I, if I train fasted, then I'm, I'm burning loads of fat. But actually the, the substrate utilization would say differently. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, look, fat, I've had these conversations before where there's a massive difference between fat oxidation or fat burning and ultimately fat balance in the body. And of course, we are talking different conversations here where if we're trying to reduce fat stores in the body uh, to, re- you know, to positively impact body composition, that is not the same thing as um, m- optimizing or maximizing the usage of fat as a fuel to support exercise. Um, you know, we know the body's got a funny habit of, um, re- you know, refilling the stores in the body as a result of those adaptations that occur within the metabolism. I talked about that with people like Dylan Thompson and James Betts and, and so on. Um, so um, listeners can get into that. Um, but you used a, a term that we've talked about a lot on this podcast about carbohydrate availability, um, energy availability, but something we don't tend to talk about so much is fatty acid availability, which you've, you've already sort of tapped into a bit there, but I did want to quickly explain, explore that is what what is what are the consequences of altering fatty acid availability um and and you know is that is that something that we want to try and do to positively impact performance um or maybe not and i know you've already hinted at this but it'd be good to expand on that properly yeah well i guess um you know, when we talk about high carbohydrate availability and often consuming carb, you know, when we talk about performance and racing, we always talk about the consumption of carbohydrate during exercise. And we know that the consumption of carbohydrate will blunt the free fatty acid response during that prolonged, prolonged exercise. So, um, so it really suppresses the, suppresses that free fatty acid. So we reduce the, you know, which aligns with reducing the utilization of, um, of fat as a fuel source. So what, yeah, what we decided to do was take a bit of a different approach. So rather than just feeding carbohydrate to actually suppress that free fatty acid response, which we know typically occurs, we used a pharmacological drug instead. Um, and so that was called nicotinic acid, which um, yeah, blunted that release of free fatty acids from the adipose tissue. And I guess what we wanted to see was, you know, does that, does that actually compromise performance? Um, we... I probably shouldn't use the term performance. We used the time to exhaustion trial, which is which is definitely different. Um, but I guess when we think of a lot of elite sports, by the end it looks like a time to exhaustion trial anyway. Um, but yeah, so certainly the you know the blunting of free fatty acids is not is not something that's often talked about at all. Which is fascinating because the overwhelming argument behind all of this is that by altering substrate availability in favor of fat um, is all about improving performance if you you know if you look at that whole camp of going 
low carb, high fat, and so on. That's what they're saying is ultimately the benefit of it. But the evidence tends to suggest otherwise, doesn't it? But there is a caveat to that. And that is that we're always, you know, we talk about endurance exercise, but as I inferred earlier, we don't define what we mean by these things. Um, so if we were to differentiate, um, um, you know, events that are uh, sort of between one hour and three hours or, uh, um, you know, uh, a whole day ultra marathon or even a multi-stage you know, marathon event, which I've got a future podcast. I'm going to be getting into this uh, with someone else, but perhaps you could just briefly maybe just mention, you know, whether you feel there is, there is going to be a difference there and that would certainly alter how we might discuss this. Um, yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I would say absolutely. There is, there is a difference and, you know, specificity is key when thinking about the event someone's trying to complete and that, you know, when we say sort of prolonged exercise, it's often thought of as two to three hours, but ultra endurance event, events are significantly longer than that. And um, again, I would say depending on the, depending on the event, that certainly plays a big role. And especially when they are working in that 60 to 70% VO2 max, Yeah. zone I'll call it um, and yeah fat, fat would play a big role in that and and I think as well taking into consideration the practical element of consuming carbohydrate for those prolonged periods of time often it's um, often it's actually carrying product is challenging availability of what you can actually consume is a challenge so yeah. events like that are much more likely to rely on the the free fatty acid availability um, rather than necessarily the, the constant top up of the carbohydrate as well. Yeah. Yeah. But again, just, just as we already discussed the difference between a participant um, an event survivor and somebody who actually wants to win a race who will have potentially hills to run up, will need to break away from a crowd. will have that sprint finish because there's an awful lot of people who, amazingly can run for a few days or a hundred miles or whatever, but that bit at the end uh, can ultimately still differentiate, you know, podium from, you know, you know, from failure, so to speak. Um, so it's still a relevant conversation, but there is a massive lack of data. One of the reasons of course is elite athletes tend not to um, subject themselves to this kind of study. I mean, can you imagine your, your ultra elite cyclist donating a leg for a few biopsy studies. It's just not going to happen, is it? I mean, look, I would certainly would say it's not going to happen, but I've proposed it several oh, times. Not often, not during competitive season, you know. Not, pre not before the Olympics next year yeah. anyway, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay. So, um, you know, we've mentioned metabolic flexibility a few times. Um, We see that term now coming up in, you know, uh, Hawley and Burke have, have mentioned it. Uh, James Morton's been mentioning it. Trent Stellingworth is, is mentioning it. I think it would be worth, and you mentioned it in your paper uh, as well. Um, you know, what basically what is metabolic flexibility and, and, and why, why perhaps would it be something that is relevant in terms of ultimately the capabilities of that metabolic machinery when it's being used, um, for example, during a competition? 
Yeah, so when we, I guess metabolic flexibility is a term that's probably more used now um, and it's been thrown around a little bit more, I suppose, in um, performance environments as well rather than the the clinical populations. And I guess initially it was certainly stemmed from more the clinical population, but when we think about it in terms of I guess when we said, you know, switching on and switching off, although it's not, it's not quite as black and white as that, it's the, it is effectively the ability to use carbohydrate and the ability to use fat. And, you know, when we think about LA athletes, we absolutely want to maximize both of those processes. We want to have the ability to switch on carbohydrate as soon as we need it, um, whatever point in a race or training session that is. And I guess when we think about then the molecular consequence of that um or what might impact the switching on is is the change in some of those regular regulatory enzymes um, and processes that actually that, that result in the, the switch on of carbohydrate and i know some of those were identified when we looked at yeah when in the past of the high fat research so if we if we thank you for that so if we if we come back then to you know the the fact that the reality is is if we're doing all this stuff properly it it isn't actually an either or black and white it it is very much that it depends on what you're trying to do with that training session it depends on what we're trying to achieve at the end of that training block Um, and really what we want then is the best of both worlds don't we that's that's kind of it. it it's rather rather than we want to fit into the it's all about carbohydrate camp or it's all about the fat camp what we want is as you've just explained you know we we want to be able to use the right fuel at the right time as best as as possible with the ultimate you know sort of the golden the golden chalice here being with everything working out well you know good health good good body composition but ultimately that that podium achieving performance at the end of the day um, you, 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 I mean, so when we talk about nutritional periodization, which is something that I have talked about with other people, then you know, because we're getting to the end of this, where this conversation can go, we just run out. Of t- it's always amazing how much we can talk about this stuff. Um, but then I guess then it, the warning here then would be, you know, just be wary of the consequences of only doing one type of thing all of the time. So if we were to bring it back to how this might apply to the periodization, nutritional periodization, what, what would you have to say about that? Like, is it, you know, do, w- would we be looking at, 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 at this, you know, f- six days a week um, and then, and then maybe focus more on, on, um, on carbohydrates specifically one day a week, you know, do we, do we make it all about, all about fats most of the time like what, what what sort of approach do you think that we should be looking at yeah so when it when it comes to nutritional periodization i guess it's um you know it, I, I certainly wouldn't break it into um you know one day's this and one day's that and it's often it's often broken up into specific sessions so we know Even that you know the gap, day, right? yeah. typically train multiple times a day so it's um you know looking session by session and as James would say, meal by meal, um, at how we actually adjust our carbohydrate and our fat intake. And there's certainly there's certainly times in the week I would say that uh, you know the athletes that I work with would be on a high carbohydrate and a higher fat diet than um than than other days. And that's based on 
the volume of you know the energy expenditure and also the volume of food intake required means you have to increase carbohydrate and fat often for them to be able to just get the calories in um, and certainly then other sessions where you know the intensity maybe isn't the priority then we would certainly introduce a, a train low approach so that might involve reducing carbohydrate you know an afternoon session where it's high intensity and then reducing the carbohydrate after that session so during the recovery period and then reducing carbohydrate the next morning as well so I have to say, despite the conversation tip initially starting off about talking about fat, I think, you know, the, the main thing that's adjusted is probably carbohydrate when it comes to that, yeah. that overall approach. But yeah, definitely, well, you know, meal by meal, looking sure. at specific training sessions. Yeah, and I think, look, I mean, my, my perspective here is, you know, everyone's just talked about carbs, um, but they don't talk about fat other than, you know, it's either high fat or low fat. And I guess what I really wanted to, sort of end this by way of a, uh, one summary is that that a high fat low carbohydrate diet will optimize if you want to use that phrase fat oxidation but there is a consequence to that which needs to be factored in which is that is that the you know it will downregulate carbohydrate metabolism um but that may also be strategically beneficial and i think where this is an issue is is people tend to be a, a, a you know they just do one thing um, they don't periodize which is why I mentioned the importance of periodization um, um, and I get, would you say that that's a fair warning sign if you're going to go down that path of I'm just going to be a high fat low carb you know or a, you know is 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 that is that going to ultimately be a concern for performance? Yeah, look, I. <laughs> always a controversial topic um, mm. but I would certainly not be recommending a high fat low carbohydrate diet and I would um, I would be periodizing my carbohydrate and fat intake around the sessions where it mattered most and where you needed to get the most out of those sessions and when it comes to performance um, you know we know that I think there's more than enough research to show that carbohydrate fuels high intensity work and to win medals involves high intensity work in that um, in that endurance field. So absolutely, carbohydrate carbohydrate wins when it comes to the the race environment um, and aligning with the energy requirements of the race. Of course, yeah. So this is very much a you can have your cake and eat it sort of conversation. You're just trying to be a bit savvy about this, aren't you? And and that's why <laughs> we've talked about what we've talked at. So look, just the final thing I I wanted to tap into. I know we're where hopefully you've still got a few minutes that we can talk about this is um, the emergence of um, ketone supplements, ketone diesters. We're not talking about a keto diet. Um, that's a whole nother conversation. We've sort of tapped a bit into that and how that may not be relevant to endurance exercise. Um, certainly where we're looking at you know, a few hours, maybe a few days, possibly for someone who's not necessarily wanting to win um, the, the race at the ultra elite level. But nonetheless, supplementation always comes into a sports nutrition conversation. Um, and you've done some work on this as well. Um, you know, people have access to ketone diester products 
what 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 would you you know what would you say that we need to consider when can you know with those products and ultimately what is the consequence of taking those products from what you've seen in in your own research yeah look we we really wanted to explore ketones because it was so topical at the time and also because it was going around the elite field and you know it was people were talking about it people were trialing it so we thought we'll bring them into the lab and actually run the study in a controlled manner where it can actually have a practical outcome whether they'll use the product or not and um you know with ketones traditionally <laughs> um not considered for sporting environment and considered from you know produced in a situation of extremely low energy availability and start almost you know starvation is where they i guess initially started out and that's where we when we think about ketones and and like you know them thinking about so thinking about exogenous ketone consumption is is quite a strange concept um and why athletes would require that when they've got sufficient carbohydrate and fat available or they can have following appropriate nutritional guidelines so it was a very interesting area to explore and um you know we brought the guys um some of the elite elite cyclists into the lab and we did we ran a time trial and we did provide a ketone diester and you know we certainly didn't find an improvement in time trial performance and we found a two percent difference with the ketone and um with the ketone diester drink and um the the biggest finding that we found or the biggest finding from us was the the gastrointestinal distress that the athletes were faced with significant Um, from what i read (laughs) it looks it was pretty frightening uh, absolutely and you know we had an athlete violently sick um so as you've worked with many athletes in your time if you suggest anything that induces gi distress you're not their favorite person um (laughs) but but yes we i think i think there's you know our finding was was very early on and i think you know there's a lot of work being done now on ketones and i think Kieran Clark's done some great work with it, with a different ketone ester. Um, and I know there's researchers in the south of Ireland um, looking at this as well. And, you know, they've done some, done some great work and are coming out with some great work. And I think we're only, you know, we're only at the start of it. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what comes out. At the moment, I personally don't believe there's enough work to suggest it has a positive impact on performance. Um, certainly from being in the lab and, the diester that we used, seeing, seeing the athletes go through it was was pretty rough, um, and the the ketone responses seem extremely varied. Um, and providing ketone drink with carbohydrate is obviously it's not a typical physiological state for the human body to be in. Um, so yeah. so yeah, it's quite it's certainly a very interesting area to explore, and I think there's going to be a lot more coming out in that space. Yes. Yeah. Well, I've got, I'm going to be doing a podcast about that. And again, it is, it is a context dependent conversation because it does depend on whether we're talking about elite athletes, uh, endurance or ultra endurance athletes, or whether people are just recreationally exercising to lose body fat and maybe some of the other impacts that ketone supplementation might have on appetite regulation and so on. But that is a completely different topic. What we're talking about is performance here um and um and 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 that's maybe where it's warned against so to speak so look okay um maybe if you could just quickly summarize then both as a as a researcher having looked at this 
but also as a high performance practitioner working with endurance athletes, particularly in endurance events, in prolonged endurance events, but up to maybe sort of three hours um, in continuous high intensity uh, level sport in that realm. What, what, what are the, what are then are the main things that we should be focusing on just to, to summarize as practitioners, you know, where our efforts should be going to get the biggest bang for the nutritional buck, so to speak. Yeah. Firstly, it's quite funny when I think about endurance athletes and some of the endurance athletes I work with, their main event is four minutes long. (laughs) So it's definitely putting into context the, you know, thinking about the athletes that you're working with, but look, absolutely. I think, um, you know, taking into consideration the type of work that the athlete's completing um, and and the end goal of what they're really trying to achieve to really maximize every single meal and every single session to get the most out of the weeks so that when it comes to race day, um, they've maximized adaptations to both carbohydrate fat metabolism dependent on what, what the end goal and the event is. I would say based on the work that I've completed at the moment, um, High fat diets and you know Louise Burke has done an extensive amount of work on this. You know the high fat diets at the moment um, have certainly not not proven to be the way forward for elite athletes. Certainly trying to accomplish that high intensity on race day. Um, and I think ketone diet, ketone esters, ketone diesters. I think it's still a space that needs explored. And I don't think we have enough evidence to certainly be prescribing them for you know, or recommending them to an elite athlete at the moment for, for performance, um, for performance anyway. So I think, yeah, I would certainly be continuing with my periodized nutritional approach, maximizing carbohydrate utilization and maximizing that, that adaptation to the train low. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's exciting times for us as performance nutritionists, isn't it? It's not just a question of getting people to eat a balanced, healthy diet and, uh, carb loading before events you know things have gotten not only more technical but there are so many more tools in the toolbox for us as practitioners but again i've i've mentioned this before that although all of these represent tools in the toolbox perhaps one angle of uh one angle that differentiates um you know practitioners is is not not just knowing which strategies or interventions to use in practice but it is also which ones not to use and that's why i i say you know yes you can do something but should you and ultimately we need to question you know not just the quality of that evidence but is it actually relevant what actually am i trying to do and that's really the purpose of these conversations you know i want people to read your papers i want people to read um the other you know, papers that contribute to the body of knowledge in this area. I definitely want people to look back at those other podcasts that I've done with, you know, John Hawley, Louise Burke, Trent Stingworth, James Morton, et cetera, et cetera. Sorry if I haven't mentioned some of the others, because it is such a, a broad and wide, wide topic. But at the end of the day, I think we still can keep this fairly simple. Um, you know, and you mentioned periodization, which is probably the, the, the way that we need to be working at this. And it doesn't have to be overly complicated. Um, but um, listen, thank you, Jill. You've been awesome today. Um, m- 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 the way in which I interview people is always a bit tricky because I'm always <laughs> leave lots of gray areas for people to get into. But that is 
what I'm hoping to do is unpack a little bit more of that evidence and expand on those gray, gray areas. So I very much appreciate your time. Um, if people want to follow you and your work, um, you know, where do we find you in terms of, you know, are you active on Twitter, um, you know, ResearchGate, et cetera? Where, where do we find you? Do you have a website, that sort of thing? Yeah, so look, I, um, I do have a Twitter account, so it's Jill Leckie, and I also do have um, ResearchGate as well with the publications on it, so both accessible. Right, and I'll, you know, I'll link to that, and as well as some of the papers that we've discussed, I will, I will, I will link to. Um, so thank you very much for your time, Jill. Um, that's the end of this podcast, folks. Um, all of this stuff that I've talked about will be on the show notes for this podcast. Uh, and all the previous podcasts will also be linked from there at guruperformance.com. My name is Laura Bannock, and I look forward to bringing back another episode of the We Do Science podcast uh, back to you all very soon.